Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, we sit down with Julian, who's a researcher at SpaceMesh, and we talk about their new consensus algorithm, which is a proof-of-space-time-based consensus algorithm. This week's episode is sponsored by POA Network. POA Network is developing an exciting new blockchain consensus protocol called Honey Badger BFT. This new protocol will be asynchronous, leaderless, censorship-resistant, and have on-chain randomness. To learn more about what makes it so unique and how that fits into the future of blockchain consensus, check out the latest POA Medium post at medium.com poa-network. So thank you again, POA Network, for sponsoring this episode. One other update is that we are soon launching a Patreon page. If you would like to support this podcast, please keep your eye out for the Zero Knowledge Patreon. We're going to be tweeting about it. And uh, yeah, if you like what we're doing, do support us. So now, here's our interview with Julian. Hi, Frederick. Hello, hello. Today, we're sitting with Julian Loss of Space Mesh. And we're going to be talking to him a little bit about this project and some of the concepts behind it. Hi, Julian. Hi. Um, maybe to kick off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this space? Okay, sure. Yeah, so I, uh, I studied computer science at ETH Zurich. Um, I graduated in 2016. And then I uh, started a PhD in cryptography in uh, Bochum, the Ruhr University of Bochum. So there, basically, I'm, I'm working on cryptographic primitives, such as uh, signature schemes, uh, identification protocols, encryption, this kind of stuff. And uh, like during my PhD, I did a visit to uh, IDC Herzliya um, in Israel, where I where I met Tal Moran, and uh, we we worked on a paper together, which uh, is currently in submission. And uh, so that was a lot of fun and then sort of like he asked me if I also wanted to maybe help him work out the consensus protocol for, uh, for Space Mesh because our paper was also on Byzantine agreement and consensus. So that's how I started working on this. And uh, then eventually it turned into a company and then they asked me if I wanted to be on their payroll and I said yes, sure. So is it a, is it a fair portrayal to say that you're more from the sort of distributed computing consensus algo space than from the blockchain space? So I think like it would be fair to say that I'm more from the cryptographic, like theoretical cryptographic side of things. Uh, I mean, these like like distributed computing and cryptography, they, they do have a lot of overlap. Like you can use solutions of both of these fields to, uh, to solve problems in either field. So yeah, but I'm more from the theoretical side of things. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of the project itself? What is Space Mesh and where did it come from? So, um, as far as I know, um, the first sort of impulse towards this idea was, uh, was with the Mesh Cache paper by Ido Bentov and Tal Moran, which you can also find online. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if they ever published it at a conference, but um, 
basically the idea there was to design this kind of protocol where you don't just have a chain, but you have a DAG, and uh, therefore you have race freeness. And the main novelty is that you have sort of two types of consensus protocols that run in parallel. One is very fast and gives you a fast confirmation time, and the other one makes the ledger uh, immutable. And so this is where the, the basic idea of, of Space Mesh's uh, consensus protocol comes from. So this DAG, I want to dig into this a little bit because um, you mentioned it's sort of a way to avoid race conditions. And we talked about in the previous episode on sort of transaction propagation and how transactions are formed in Ethereum that you have this nonce for a transaction. You can only process transaction two once pr- transaction one is processed because they're like linearly dependent on each other. Um, yes. And what the DAG then is trying to do, if I understand correctly, is you split this up so that you have independent transactions that you know have no dependency on each other. They have no pointers in between each other in this DAG, and so you know you can process them in parallel, and that's why it's a speed-up. So this is one aspect, right? So that's that what you just said. That's, that's correct. Uh, so you, you get more throughput because uh, more blocks can be processed at the same time. They don't depend on each other. But there is also another uh, sort of uh, flavor to this, which is that uh, if you look at how Bitcoin works, basically you solve the proof of work to extend the blockchain. But it's, uh, it's quite unlikely, if you're a miner, that you're actually going to be extending the blockchain with your block. So most of the work is sort of going to be for nothing, right? Because it's going to be discarded, and then you have to do it all over again. And uh, in Space Mesh, we actually have a situation where no work or no proofs of space, in this case, will go to waste. If a proof is solved, then it will always make it into, uh, into this layer DAG if it was solved correctly. So nothing goes to waste here. That's sort of the idea. And that's what we call race-freeness, because there is no race to create... Uh, the next block in the stack. I see. So it's not a race between transactions. It's a race between like the sort of the the typical mining race of uh, who can solve the problem first. Yeah. So basically, that's who would extend the blockchain in Bitcoin. So yeah, who, who solves the problem first? Yeah. I don't know if we've actually defined exactly what a DAG is yet. So maybe we can do that. So a DAG is a directed acyclic graph. Okay. So it's uh, it's basically a graph which has no cycles, that's why it's called acyclic, and uh, the edges, uh, they, they point in a certain direction, so they, they're directed. And uh, so that means that if you start from a certain point in the DAG, then uh, you, can, you can walk around, but, but you will never get back to this point, right? Because uh, there are no cycles. So cycles, like the, the acyclic property of the DAG is important because it removes dependencies like circular dependencies in this graph, which would lead uh, to contradictions. So it only makes sense if there are if there are no cycles in this graph, because a uh, transaction obviously cannot depend on itself in any way. That's why it needs to be acyclic. So I mean, if you if you break it down even further, like a yeah. graph is something that connects nodes with edges, and those edges can be directed or not, and there can be. Cycles okay, so in that graph between those. So nodes let's let's go even, go even deeper. So, like, think of think of uh, the like a graph is as you said is a is basically a structure that connects uh, that connects vertices with edges, 
And in, in our graph, uh, obviously, or in any uh, transaction graph, so we have blocks which denote the vertices of this graph, and the edges are basically the dependencies between uh, these blocks. So, uh, for example, in, in Bitcoin, the dependency graph is extremely simple. You just have one long chain where every block in the chain depends on the last block. So, so it's a very, very simple. And graph. the reason we call a blockchain a chain and not a graph is because it usually ju just has like one line. But in fact, if you look at a, at like a micro scale and, and always look at the tip of this chain, it, it actually is a graph most of the time. Uh, there are almost always competing tips at this graph. It's just that in a, in a, like in Ethereum or Bitcoin blockchain, it eventually like collapses to one point and you, you have this long chain instead. Is it considered cyclical or cyclic? No, so because it's just one line, it would be acyclic as well. So, I mean, oh, it would, okay. A Bitcoin chain is a DAG. It's just so extremely simple. It's not worth calling it that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Bringing, bringing it back a little bit to Space Mesh and the sort of context of this blockchain, um, in your case, what is actually stored in this DAG? And like, is it the blocks, the transactions? You mentioned a little bit of this, but if you can just reiterate. Okay, so basically the blocks store transactions, as in Bitcoin, but they also store some other information. Um, and precisely what they store is um, they store uh, votes about other older blocks in the deck. And so the idea is that every block votes about older blocks and uh, that like the sum of all these votes that you see of a block basically uh, creates um, consensus eventually about which blocks in the deck are valid and which ones are not. And uh, like after a while, if the DAG grows enough and sufficiently much time passes, then uh, we can show with, a, with our analysis that uh, if a vote is tipped in a certain direction, sufficiently enough, so if the vote crosses a certain threshold in a certain direction sufficiently, then uh, every new block, which was created by an honest party, will always vote in the same direction. And in this way, we sort of create an immutable ledger which can never change over time, even if there are some layers in which no parties are honest. Of course, there cannot be too many of such layers, but uh, if there are certain, only very few such instances of layers where there are very, very few honest parties, even against such a thing, we can, we can protect the immutability of our ledger. The mesh in Space Mesh, is this at all similar to the Tangle of IOTA? So I can't really answer that question because I'm, I'm not really familiar with the exact details of IOTA's consensus protocol. I think it might be a bit different because the idea of uh, creating consensus using votes of newer blocks about votes of older blocks, I think this is really something that, uh, that I've seen for the first time in Space Mesh. And also, like, the fact that our analysis, is, like, that we are analyzing this and it's, it's very difficult to analyze this, I think this, I, I don't think that ever somebody has done this before. But, uh, so I think there are some crucial differences here, but I can't really say what they are. Yeah, I'd, I'd also say it's quite different. If I understand correctly, then you're basically storing blocks in your nodes of the graph, and IOTA is storing transactions. And what their DAG is doing is sort of each transaction 
back references like to older transactions and you create some proof of work to validate those older transactions okay. and that's how you forward um but that essentially means that um you have more security in the network the higher your proof of work sort of network throughput is um but okay. in, at low throughput times it's it's basically insecure okay i see you keep mentioning votes i yeah. didn't exactly understand what those are what are the votes okay so basically right we, we talked about dags before right so we have a an acyclic an acyclic graph and uh in this acyclic graph because it's also directed therefore dag the edges in this graph they have a direction so that you can imagine them as being arrows and uh, the meaning of the edges in our graph are basically which blocks another newer block votes for okay so if there is a directed um, edge to an older block from a newer block then this uh, directed edge you can think of it as having a label plus or minus and then it means that the newer block votes for an older block Okay, so I can, I can vote for this block to be valid or I can vote ah. for this block to be invalid for some reason. Maybe it's syntactically malformed or uh, it just doesn't trust this block. So whatever, for whatever reason, it could vote against this block, say it's invalid. But uh, so the, the main idea of, uh, of our protocol is that uh, if there are sufficiently many such uh, votes in favor of a block, of it being valid or of it being invalid, and eventually everybody will vote in the same direction forever. And uh, you cannot change that anymore. Is there any punishment for being invalid? There isn't. Like, okay, so right now we're not talking about an incentivized protocol yet. So this is all just like a classical consensus-style protocol. Okay, and um, so up to now there are no incentivizations. But if we do uh, make this protocol incentive compatible at some point, then probably there will be punishments added. Yes. Uh, what, is there a particular threshold of votes that any that needs to be reached for a block to be validated? Well, let me let me see how, how can I best explain this. So, like, the, the, the idea of the protocol is, so what I just described is something that, that happens over time gradually. So the more new blocks trickle in, um, the more you sort of get an immutable view of the past, right? And so, like, what you would call validated, this happens over time. Mm -hmm. But... Um, and so, so, like, to answer your question, your first question, is there a threshold that you have to pass for this uh, um, immutability or validity to, to really kick in? Then the answer is yes, there is a certain threshold that you have to pass. And after you pass the threshold, uh, we can ensure that every new block, which was honestly mined, also votes in the same direction of this threshold that was passed. So, but this doesn't really answer the question yet of how do you get new blocks in the system, right? So that's that's really the the other question that you have to ask here. And this is uh, so basically our protocol has two kind of components. The one that I described now is called the the tortoise component because it trickles in over time. It's a very slow protocol, but uh, the the fast part, which guarantees that blocks are confirmed very fast after they've been mined, is what we call the hair protocol. And this is. Basically, just a simple Byzantine agreement protocol, which lets us agree on new blocks. And these new blocks, then, they all have a vote for older blocks. And this is how you sort of build up this stack over time. By agreeing on new blocks via hair, 
and then having these new blocks vote about all the blocks. So in the hair protocol, you said there's like some sort of BFT uh, agreement. What what is that fast BFT agreement? Yeah, so I I, I would not uh, really call it BFT because like this this terminology uh, sort of confusing people nowadays because uh, so classically what the BFT protocol does is uh, or that's how the name came about like PBFT does state machine uh, replication yeah. so state machine replication is basically the same thing as blockchain protocols are doing nowadays uh, it's creating an ordered log of transactions that come in from the parties participating in this protocol and this is not what we're doing so what we're doing is running sort of a one-shot Byzantine agreement, okay? So instead of, like, using the Byzant- like using this protocol to, uh, to agree on an ordered log of transactions, we just want to agree on a certain set of uh, blocks that have been mined during the newest layer of our, um, of our mesh, of our DAG. Okay, so everybody sort of has their own... Um, newly mined fresh set of blocks that they trust and they can give this set of blocks as an input to this Byzantine agreement protocol and now the protocol must ensure that at the end of the protocol everybody outputs the same set of freshly mined blocks under some sort of non-triviality conditions that ensure that if every honest player included a certain block in its input set to this protocol then this block must also show up in the output set of the protocol. On the other hand, if no honest player inputs a certain block in its input set to this protocol, then this block should also not show up in the output of the set of this Byzantine Agreement protocol. And uh, so the Byzantine Agreement is something that has been around for almost 40 years. It's very uh, well understood, and there's been a lot of work on this. To, to really make it scalable and make it fast, you have to couple it with a lot of new ideas that, uh, that we sort of pick from across many places. For, for example, you mentioned Algorand from before, so we, we take some ideas from Algorand to, uh, to speed up uh, our protocol and make it more efficient. But also, uh, usually Byzantine Agreement is phrased as every party just inputting one value to the protocol. But here, we actually have the parties input sets of values, sets of blocks to this protocol, and we want them to agree on a set of blocks. And so this really makes things a lot more complicated, and we have to take an existing Byzantine Agreement protocol and change it so that it can also accept sets and run this Byzantine Agreement protocol that I just described. Interesting. Does this have a name in some way, or is it just Byzantine Agreement, like if people want to Google this and find resources? So Byzantine Agreement, yeah, you, you can Google it. There are thousands of papers on this, like literally thousands of papers. So it's, it's just, um, basically it's just distributed consensus, right? So everybody's trying to agree on a value. And uh, this is a very non-trivial problem in a distributed network without trust. And then I guess so, like the, the things that actually make it work well for your case is, is those sort of bits that you've added to it and, uh, and modified Yes, so like in a classical setting of Byzantine agreement, usually there, like everybody has a public key, everybody agrees on who is participating in this protocol, um, so you have some kind of common setup. And this is something that, uh, and, and okay, and so also very importantly, these things were developed for, you know, a very small number of parties, maybe like 
think think hundreds of parties, okay? But here we're we're talking about millions of parties, right? So uh, so we really have to introduce a lot of tricks to to make this yeah. work. And uh, that, that's uh, like the same problem that PBFT faces, and why you can't just just use PBFT for a blockchain is. Like yes, it, it exactly. only works with you know 100 participants or something. Exactly. Yes. Is there any like so? I think going back to Frederick's question there about resources, are there any resources that explain what you have done other than the white paper? Or I don't even know if it's in there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So so what I've just described about the hair protocol, this I think you can find in the white paper that we have on our website right now. So because it's it's currently still being like developed. Uh, so we're testing if it's efficient enough. So this is a, a very iterative process, right? So we had uh, a lot of solutions, and then we, we went to the developers and, and said, yeah, maybe try to implement this. And uh, they did, and then they said, oh, you know, this is not efficient enough by a long right. shot. And so, so this is an iterative process, but as soon as we have something that's like efficient enough in terms of communication and com computation complexity, then we will certainly update the white paper with uh, the, the, the full proof of this protocol. Uh, I had one short little question before we. I want to move into like the the proof part. So in in this setup, you have this Byzantine agreement on which set of blocks to include, and then you have the the Tortoise protocol to you know vote and produce like validity of those blocks and progress the chain. Yes. Uh, but in the production of the blocks, how do you ensure that transactions aren't duplicated so that you don't get like two blocks with the same transaction in it? Oh, so like th that, this is entirely possible. That, uh, th so that's why it's also a DAG, right? So like miners don't know if they uh, might be including the same transaction in the blocks. So that's actually an, an interesting sort of question for uh, maybe optimi optimizing some aspects of the protocols of that. Not too many transactions are uh, included in the same blocks. But so it's basically if uh, a transaction is uh, in two blocks, then both can't be voted valid. Or what happens then? No. Oh no, they they can be voted valid. So that's uh, exactly the point of this race freeness, right? Because uh, so in, in so basically you just say uh, as long as you you participate in the protocol and. Uh, Honest transactions are always included in some kind of, uh, you know, like one of these blocks. Then uh, the protocol will make progress, and uh, everybody, well, gets uh, well, every everybody is happy with, with what they're seeing. And as long as the parties are agreeing on uh, what blocks are in a certain layer, uh, transaction will not be uh, sort of carried out twice, right? Because there is a there is a view on uh, on layer that parties can verify so you can check uh, which transactions you should be you should be uh, conducting which right so so even if there's a transaction that's included twice in a particular layer when you go to like build your state database you you basically you run dot unique to find all the unique transactions in that layer exactly i mean right it's it's not very different from uh, from what bitcoin does in terms of that you have to wait for a certain amount of time until you can really verify which uh, yeah. transactions are unique and which not. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, cool. Makes sense. In the explanation of the DAG, you sort of said that this was not taking into account incentivization. Where yes. does incentivization come in? So it's a very, very complicated question to add incentives to any kind of protocol. And I think it's something that as an academic community, we really haven't sufficiently understood yet. 
because like so many weird things can happen when incentives come into play. Would you say would you say then like when you say that it's there will be an incentivization an incentive mechanism in this but mm-hmm. it isn't yet figured out. So basically we're 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 doing exactly the same thing as I think most other uh academic blockchain companies are doing, right? So what we're we're trying to do is just develop this protocol in a non-incentivized setting. And uh, after we we test correctness and efficiency and all of these aspects of the protocol, then we try to make it incentive compatible. And I mean, basically the intuition here is, but of course it's much more, it's going to be much more complicated in the real world, is that if you add the incentives and the right amount of incentives to the right parts of the protocol, then it should continue to work as it is, right? It should so, give you the right behavior. It should but give maybe, you the right are behavior. You, are you saying that first you need to discover what the right behavior is? Exactly. So first, what we have to do is we have to think of like the parties either behaving honestly or behaving dishonestly, but not rationally as being driven by incentives. And then we want to prove certain security properties about our consensus protocol and that it does what it should do if uh, parties either behave honestly or dishonestly. But as soon as parties can behave rationally, things change, right? And then you have to basically try to incentivize them in such a way that they do behave as we've envisioned in our original uh, analysis. Hmm. Then will Space Mesh be a blockchain of its own? Like what, what will it end up being? It's a, I mean, that's a very good question. And uh, I mean, I think as a, I, th- I think that's, that's not really uh, something for me to answer because uh, I mean, for this, we have really people that are trying to, uh, to promote the protocol more and, uh, you know, are, taking care of this high level and high overview kind of, kind of thing. Uh, but I think eventually the, the idea would be for it to be a, an own uh, kind of cryptocurrency, yes. So yeah, I'm trying to figure out exactly where it lives on that landscape. If it's like a small piece to a larger puzzle or if it's in itself is going to be a, or aims to be an ecosystem. I think it, it does aim to be a, its own ecosystem for sure. Because I mean, so one of the core motivations of Space Mesh really is that... Um, it gives you a cryptocurrency where mining is very accessible. So everybody should be able to mine blocks in Space Mesh, which is a sort of a situation that that is not really the case anymore in uh, a lot of big cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not so sure about Ethereum, but but for sure so, Bitcoin. I mean, okay, yeah, probably. I mean, Ethereum you have these really sort of can, but it's no, not really. <laughs> you need it's massive yeah, investment to do anything yeah. sensible. So I mean, like if you want to move more towards the proof direction, I think this would also be sort of a good tangent here because um, so basically the difference between something like Bitcoin and Space Mesh is that uh, the way that uh, that proofs are solved in Space Mesh is something that is much, much more accessible to uh, a regular user than what you have in, in Bitcoin. Okay, and so basically the main difference is that so while Space Mesh is proof of space or proof of space time based, Bitcoin is uh, proof of work based, right? And so for Bitcoin, you need these really specialized ASIC processors and uh, the situation in, uh, in Space Mesh is more that uh, like everybody has space that they can free on their hardware and they can, or they can occupy it with some useless data for a while. And therefore, it's much, much easier to participate in Space Mesh than in something like Bitcoin. 
I think this is a really good transition into yeah. the proof question because yes. also that sounds a lot like another project and I really want to understand the proof of space-time to best to understand exactly what the point of space mesh is. So I think, yes. yeah, it's easy to imagine like the DAG structure that you explained where, you know, you produce this vote for the previous blocks. You can vote, like I could easily imagine that to be able to vote, you have to supply a proof-of-work proof. But like you said, that's not what you're doing. You're doing a proof of space time. And space, in this case, to clarify, is like hard drive space, right? Yes. So basically, you have to prove that you had a certain amount of free space. That's that's what proof of space does, right? So you have to to show that there was a certain amount of space that you had available at a certain point in time. Okay, and so the difference between a classical proof of space and the proof of space time is mainly that... In proof of space time, you have to show that you kept a certain part of your hard drive, a certain space occupied with useless data over a certain period of time. And your space time resource is basically the product of how much space you kept occupied over what amount of time. So uh, it gives you a more flexible sort of resource than what proof of space does. So how do you... Uh, figure out how much time has been spent. Uh, we we had Benedict Bunts on this show a while ago, and he's written some excellent papers on verifiable delay functions. We covered that like very cursory, <laughs> and we want to do a whole episode on it. But yes. I assume it's something in that direction. It is yes. Well, you can think of it uh, as a as a verifiable delay function. I think like if you go into really the details, there are some. There are some differences between a verifiable delay function and a proof of sequential time. But um, So basically, we're using a proof of sequential time to, to prove that you kept this, this uh, amount of storage occupied for a certain amount of time. So basically, what the proof of sequential time, proof of sequential work, what it should ensure is that uh, it's not possible, even if you have a lot of parallel computing power, to speed up the computation of this, of this proof, right? So... There are two two uh, kind of um, specs here. So the first one is that if you have a certain amount of computing power, then you should be able to compute this proof of uh, sequential work within a certain um, amount of time. But like having more parallel computing power than this should not help you in computing it faster. That's the idea. So yeah, because and it's sequential, you you can only occupy one core to compute this. exactly. So, for example, a very simple sequential such uh, function would be, uh, think of, I give you a nonce, okay? And now you just apply SHA-256 to this nonce over and over and over again, okay? And then, in the end, like, the output of this many iteratively uh, applied SHA-256 function on this nonce would be the output, the proof of sequential time. So, and there is no way to carry out these iterative uh, applications of SHA-256 any faster than by doing it, well, iteratively. You cannot do it in parallel, right? Because every iteration depends on the last one. But the problem with this is that you can't verify it without redoing all of the work. Exactly. That's why you need something that's more clever. Yes. So there are, there are different proposals of how to do this. Uh, one is like a sort of Merkley tree-based version of what I've just described. So it's, uh, it uses a special hash called a Merkley hash. And there was a paper uh, about how to do this in a very efficient way at Eurocrypt 
2018, which is sort of one of our main uh, academic conferences in photography. And so this is also um, the proof of sequential work that we're using. So you asked about the uh, time part, but can we also explore the space part? So at a high level, it's sort of this pointer chasing argument. And the way that it works is that, so what is the idea of a proof of, of space time? So either you keep a certain amount of data occupied over the time that you claim, or you recompute the proof of space time whenever you have to, well, show it to anybody, right? That's the idea. So basically, there are two lanes that you could go. Either you like really keep this, this proof, uh, this, this space occupied over a certain amount of time, or you redo a lot of work when you actually have to show this uh, uh, proof of space time to anybody. So in the first case, you actually keep all of this data occupied over a certain amount of time. But in the second case, where you recompute it, you would have to load a lot of this table that you would have to keep stored in, able to be, uh, in order to be able to recompute it very fast. You would have to load it into your, into your cache again. You would have to load it into your memory again and redo all of this computation to, to load this entire huge table back into your memory. And this is what would cause you to do a lot of work if you didn't keep the table stored in your memory over the time that you claim. So this is the, this is the punishment if you're trying to sort of fool the system. Exactly, yes. Okay. So you would have to recompute a lot of this table that you claim to have stored over a certain amount of time when you have to present the proof. So what you're describing here then is that problem of like when you're, when you're trying to prove that you're storing a certain amount of data for a certain amount of time, what you end up having to do is checking, like pinging that system over and over and over again to see like, is it still there? Is it still there? Is it still there? Right? Isn't that how that would have to work? Like you, I mean, obviously not constant, but like, isn't that sort of the, the concept of like how to prove that it's there? No, not quite. Okay. So the way that you do it basically is you create a, a dependency between the proof of sequential work and, um, and an interactive version of what I've just described. So in the interactive version of our proof of space-time, um, there is a verifier and there is a prover. And the verifier basically sends, after a certain amount of time has elapsed, a challenge to the prover. And then the prover answers this challenge. And the challenge and uh, the answer to the challenge is computed in such a way that either, as I just described, you would have to redo all of this work, or, well, you can just store the table and don't have to redo all the work and all of this computation when you have to present the proof and answer the challenge. So, but because we can't have uh, this prover-verifier interaction for every proof that we compute, because this would be just a lot of communication overhead, and we want to be able to non-interactively uh, check whether such a proof of space-time has been computed correctly, uh, we sort of, well, we use a, a very common heuristic in cryptography, which is called the Fiat-Shamir heuristic. And so basically what you do there is you compute a random challenge on a commitment, and this random challenge replaces the verifier. Okay, and so the randomness of this challenge ensures that you couldn't have uh, known the challenge before, 
And therefore, you have to answer it honestly if you present this proof in the end. So this is what we call the Fiat Shamir heuristic. It's, it's very well known and it's used in many places. It basically makes an interactive proof non-interactive. But now we couple this Fiat Shamir heuristic by creating sort of this interleavance between uh, proof of sequential work and this interactive version of the proof of space-time that I've just described to you. And by creating this uh, sort of combination of these two things, we can, one, make the proof non-interactive, and two, also add this proof that um, it was computed a certain time ago, and therefore you would have to store all of this data over this time or have to have recomputed at the end of the proof. So you wouldn't need to... Basic, you wouldn't need to have that interaction happen much. Like, would it just be... Like, what's your time frame? Is it, like, every hour when it's removed? Like, how would you define when that actual thing happens? The checking, the verifi verification? Um, so, the verification... So, so basically, uh, the, the time that, that is elapsing here is the time that it, that it uh, takes to compute a new layer, right? And so, you can think of this as being maybe in the order of, of minutes. So, for maybe for some minutes, you would have to keep a certain amount of data occupied on your hard disk. But uh, after that, uh, you, can, you can free your data. You can free your storage again and delete this useless data that you had stored there. So wait, is this, but maybe I'm misunderstanding, is this not a, like, are you also trying to prove that something is being stored and would use it for storage? Because, like, then it would be stored potentially for hours, days. No. So the semantics of the proof of space-time is that you, that you show that you stored a certain amount of data over a certain amount of time, or, or alternatively kept a certain amount of storage on your hard disk free for like to occupy it with useless data over a certain amount of time. And this is something that you can prove that you can prove in the in the future that you did this in the past over the time that you claim and for the amount of, of data that you claim. Okay, so it, there is no need to keep the data occupied after you've created the proof that you kept it occupied over a certain amount of time. So this proof will be valid after uh, you, you've done this. So you don't have to keep it there. It, it's not like you're trying to store any like real data that like any any files or any anything that's of any sort of value at all. And arguably, no. even like storing something of value would diminish the security of the algorithm because then you can just like store your home video file, which you would be storing anyway. Possibly. Possibly, but but of course, like the idea of like with, with like as in any kind of uh, cryptocurrencies that you want to thwart this uh, sort of civil kind of attack, where they are you know like one adversarial party creates many fake identities to take over uh, the honest majority of the system and uh, cheat the consensus algorithm. So, uh, but instead of doing work here, we're just using the space time resource. I see. Okay, so yeah. it is. It's just for the. Like proving of doing something. It's like it's a, instead of yeah, proof of work, you're doing... Yeah, exactly. exactly, yes. But in no way is the actual act of storing anything useful. No, it's not useful. Okay. I mean, it's a, like as in proof of work, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like a useless It is a useless <laughs> work that you're doing. But, but I, so that was an interesting point that you made before. Like, would it create an inherent problem for security if the work or if the data that you're occupying or the storage that you're occupying is uh, is actually useful work or useful data and uh, i'm it's, it's not completely clear that this would violate security so there are also some papers on proofs of useful work 
and uh, it's not clear that you couldn't use them instead of a proof of useless work. And the same probably might go for here, but I don't know really if this is true. I have a small question on on that that I had been thinking about about VDFs before, and it's probably relevant to your proof of sequential time as well. When you're computing this this sort of linear workload, um, you're using one core, but obviously the time it takes depends very much on you know which core it is. If it's in you know, a Raspberry Pi doing this, or if it's you know in uh, an Intel i7, or like even you know the difference between like a server grade processor that might have many small cores versus like a gaming computer that has few large cores, etc. Um, how do you yes. like just like adjust to those differences? Um, so the way that we do it is that we are going to let the proof of sequential work sequential time. We're going to let it be, uh, be carried out by like a small group of servers which are only meant to carry out these proofs of space-time. So like, this sort of creates a small uh, trusted setup kind of situation, but the point is that uh, you, know, like, you can verify if these uh, servers carry out the computation correctly, and uh, if at some point you, know, you see, okay, this is not being done correctly, then you could just switch to, every, uh, to everybody computing them themselves instead. And, and so, like, the question that you just asked, like, it doesn't show up as long as this small group of uh, designated servers does their job correctly, because obviously they're just configured all in the same way. But as soon as you do switch to everybody computing their, their proofs themselves, then obviously, yeah, you would have to take care of these kinds of things. Um, so, but there it might be possible to, uh, to switch to some, uh, to some special hash function. So, so there, there are a lot of proposals of certain hash functions which are memory hard, so which, which take up a lot of memory and which have very, very slow uh, evaluation. And maybe you can switch to them instead uh, of using something standard like SHA-256 to, to mend and to help with this issue. Yeah, because memory is like less variable. Or, yes. But um, <clears throat> another, uh, so yeah, I mean, one naive solution is also just to like optimize your security for running the most like a five gigahertz core and you know every if, if you run something else that's your fault you're going to be slower you're not not going to profit as much and just yep. like run this cpu if you want to be the best but um then it's also like the qu- a question of like because you know cpu power doubles every whatever uh, it doesn't actually like not clock speed not anymore but assuming clock speeds will continue to go up wouldn't you have to like switch out your function every 18 months to make sure that you're not like getting getting like less secure over time um yes that might be possible but i think the difference between something like bitcoin and uh space time based protocol is that uh you wouldn't actually have to replace the architecture of the machines being involved so you would only have to switch to a like a different hash function or like a different yeah. way of this uh, proof of space time being computed, right? And, and so that's really a, a main difference because it doesn't mean that you have to replace all of your, your hardware to be able to... I mean, it's, to it's a, it would sort of thing. be like uh, Ethereum pushing back its uh, Ice Age every 6 to 12 months. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 probably that's a good analogy, yeah. So we've kind of compared proof of space time to proof of work. 
And I have, but I have this question back at the beginning of this conversation. We were talking about these votes and these blocks being validated in a way. I'm just curious about how this proof of space time actually work. Like where, where's the connection point between those two things? Who's doing it? So who is, who is voting or who is doing the proof of space time? Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. So, so, yeah, good question. So basically, uh, the way that it works is that, as in Bitcoin, everybody is creating uh, proofs of space time or proofs of work. Mm-hmm. And um, if you want to be part of the, the system, basically, then you have to show that you're doing like you're 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 using some kind of resource because otherwise the adversary could just flood the whole system with fake identities. And so this is exactly what we're doing here, right? So everybody just has to show like to be an eligible node in our protocol, they're solving some kind of they're using some kind of resource. Is the use of the resource creating the vote? No, the use of the resource okay. is just like uh like presenting presenting that you have solved the uh, Proof of space it time. just gives you your identity in the system. Yes, it gives okay. you an identity. So now, uh, for for every, like, so think of our our uh, our mesh as being layered, right? So in like for every uh, for every time frame, you have a certain layer in which new blocks are produced by running this Byzantine agreement protocol that I've talked about before. So now, basically, what you do is that we we choose a certain. Uh, a certain subset of eligible nodes for for a specific layer in the future. So this will be many many nodes who have solved their uh, who have solved correctly these proofs of space time, and they will be eligible to produce blocks in this layer in the future. Okay, and so this is how you thwart the SIPL attack. So now, when once you get to this layer, then you have to uh, to take care of all of these. Um, these cryptographic sortition arguments and uh, how to run the Byzantine agreement protocol in a in a scalable fashion among these many many nodes, which uh, are eligible to uh, to participate in the protocol during this given layer. So this is how they are coupled. I hope I I managed to explain it in this. I certain, think so. Actually, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's like, would you argue that Space Mesh has two? key innovations one is the specific dags setup that you guys have and the other is this identity through proof of space time okay so i think this is just from my point of view so i think for me the main innovation is the way that our consensus protocol works like these two different like the slow one which is very resilient very robust and the fast one which uh yeah, which is just fast and which gives you a fast agreement. So coupling these two, th- these two uh, things together in the way that we do it, I think this is, uh, for me, the main innovation of our protocol. Um, like regarding space-time, I think in the beginning, one of the main reasons that we wanted to use space-time rather than just space as a resource is because we were hoping that it would make the protocol more incentive compatible as soon as we were able to move on to that stage. Okay, and the reason is that, so in proof of space, once you present, you're, you're asked to present your proof of space, 
there is sort of the dilemma of if you want to keep the space occupied over the time that you have claimed to keep it occupied, or if you would just recompute this this uh, this proof of space and then show it. But if everybody recomputes the proof of space rather than uh, keeping the space occupied over the duration of a certain amount of time, then basically the protocol devolves to a proof of work protocol because then everybody's just recomputing their proof of space mm. instead of keeping them. So we want to be a green cryptocurrency and we don't want this to devolve to a proof of like to a proof of work kind of cryptocurrency. And this is the reason why we. I think initially thought about uh, using proof of space time because um, it gives you much more of an incentive to keep your your storage occupied over a certain amount of time because this also goes into your proof of space time resource rather than just occupying space for a certain short amount of time. So it does account for how much time you spend keeping this data open. So this was the, the original reason why we wanted to use space time. But now we're, we're sort of seeing that like, if you look at this in the real world, you know, things tend to work a lot differently than on paper. So maybe we might actually use proof of space in the end. And oh, okay. the, the, the protocol would, would work very similar, actually. It, it wouldn't make much of a difference. For That's something both. you could potentially switch out. Yeah, so you could, you could switch out. But this really requires a very careful analysis of how, you know, Parties are, are using the resources. How are they computing the proofs? Are they keeping the, the data occupied or are they recomputing it? So this really would require to analyze this behavior. You speak very much like a researcher where in the business world, innovation is taking two Lego bricks and plugging them together. And in the research world, it's only if you invented Lego. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, like, I mean, that's also what makes these kind of things interesting, right? So you have to always uh, see, like, how is the real world behaving and how is my stuff on paper behaving? And you have to, you don't, you, you can't, uh, you have to recon, how should I say, you have to reconcile these two things, right? So it's not just possible to, to ignore the one or the other. Well, this has been a really interesting dive into Space Mesh. Thank you so much for this. Yeah, thank you. It was very, very nice. Actually, to before, I don't want to wrap up yet. Um, I want to ask one more thing. Given the fact that we've touched on a bunch of sort of newer topics, are there any resources or a place that you would recommend people go check out if they want to learn more about Space Mesh, but also some of the other things that we talked about? It's, it would be really important for people to understand these consensus algorithms a bit better, right? Just to get an idea of how they work, because the ideas are, you know, like, usually always the same ideas. So it's not like people are reinventing the wheel every time. And so there's a, a really, really nice article that summarizes classical consensus algorithms and it summarizes blockchain-based consensus-type algorithms. And uh, it was recent, recently published on the, uh, the ePrint archive for cryptography. And it's by uh, Juan Garay and Agelos Kiayas, who is also a, a part of IOHK. And uh, the title of this paper is SOK, A Consensus Taxonomy in the Blockchain Era. So I can really recommend this if you want to just understand a bit how, how these protocols work and maybe get into it a bit deeper because it also has a lot of references to other papers that you can look up if you want to understand things in more detail. Cool. Well, thank you very much. No, thank you, guys. Yeah, very nice talking to you. Thanks for joining us today. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.